And now if you will turn with me to Matthew 23. We're going to continue worshiping as we study God's word and specifically considering what worship looks like. Uh, we are in the middle of the final confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders. We started it last week where he takes them back to Psalm 110 and he reminds them that the, the Christ, the Messiah, is a son of David. He will be a king, but he must be more than that because he wasn't just David's son, he was David's Lord. And then Jesus turns to the crowds and he says, these men are complete and utter spiritual failures against everything that they would have you believe, against everything that you might be tempted to believe about them yourself, they are not the kind of shepherds that God has called them to be. They are hypocrites. They don't care about the people. They pile up burdens. You in the crowd, you among the disciples, take heed and take warning and be different. You want to know what greatness looks like in the kingdom? The greatest in the kingdom is the most humble. The greatest in the kingdom is the servant. And today, Jesus is going to carry on that final confrontation, and he's going to direct the woes to the scribes and Pharisees in his last public words. These are the last public words in the life and ministry of Jesus before the cross, and he is going to use it to condemn counterfeit worship. Matthew 23 we're going to go all the way from 13 all the way down to 36. I'll talk fast. Er. But I want to read that first opening woe to get a sense of where we're at. Matthew chapter 23, beginning in verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves, nor do you allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Let's pray. Lord, you know that we're entering into a serious passage, and as such, it's easy to think of how this might apply to others. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes so that we might see wonderful things from your word. And Lord, specifically, we ask today that you would open our eyes and to help us rightly evaluate our own worship. Not our spouse, not our friends, not the people around us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to do an honest evaluation of our own hearts this morning. Not so that we can live in dread of your punishment, so that we can live in the freedom of knowing your forgiveness. Lord, help us to be genuine worshipers, those who worship in spirit and in truth. It's not something we come to on our own. It's not something we fall into by accident, Lord. We are desperately in need of the work of your spirit to transform our hearts. And so we ask and pray today, Lord, make us worshipers. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We have all heard and used the phrase, the straw that broke the camel's back, that last little bit that pushed something over the edge, the place, the time, the moment where something went from frustrating but tolerable to something that we could no longer stand. We're at that point in Matthew's gospel. The religious leaders hate Jesus and they have hated him for a long time. The religious leaders want to be done with Jesus to put him to death and they have felt that way for quite some time, but up to this point, uh, they've been afraid. They're afraid of the crowds. They don't want to start a riot. They certainly don't want to uh, do something right around the festivities of the Passover. But today we've reached the tipping point. And now their every effort 
after what Jesus says and exposes today is going to be directed at silencing the one who exposes them really at every turn. And in this passage, it doesn't break down into two or three neat sections that I can kind of alliterate for you and then put subpoints on. So the slides are going to look a little different. They're not any more exciting. You got two pictures last week. Uh, that's your monthly allotment. Um, we're going to move through this and we're going to group all these woes together because they're a block. Uh, we have to keep them together. But the temptation, once again, is going to be to read these like a historical document and say, weren't those Pharisees bad guys? And the answer is yes. Those Pharisees were bad guys. They were failures, and their failure was an abomination. But it's very easy to read this as a historical thing and to think through it as a historical thing and then to wash our hands of it and leave it there in the past and say, well, at least I'm not like them. And the odd and ironic thing is, as soon as we start saying, well, thank God that I'm not like that other person, it actually sounds a whole lot like the Pharisee in Luke chapter 9. <laughs> we have to use this to evaluate our own worship. To, sink, to think through this as far as how it applies to us, not to put ourselves in there, not to find some mystical hidden meaning. This is not theologically difficult but to see that as Jesus points out the characteristics of condemned worship, as Jesus points out those failures and what failed worship looks like, we have to look at our own worship and hold it up to the light of Scripture to make sure that our worship really is genuine worship. And if you look there at verse 13, woe to you, we are going to see that over and over. And we need to understand that this whole section is very serious. Woe to you, is judgment, woe, sorrow, trial, pain, suffering is coming on you as a mark of judgment. This is not, guys, do a little bit better. This is not try a little bit harder. These are the most severe things that he can say. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, and we know who they are, representative of the religious leaders there, hypocrites. All of this is grounded in their hypocrisy. Uh, remember, a hypocrite is somebody who does or says one thing, but is inwardly or in reality something else. And what do they pretend to be? What do they pretend to portray? Well, they pretend, they portray, they appear to be religious. They appear to be clean. They appear to be holy. They appear to be pure. They appear to be worshipers. And Jesus is now going to take the next uh, 23 verses to show that they are anything but that. So that's going to be a common introduction, but really every single one of these is designed to show why their worship failed. These are the characteristics of condemned false worship. And the first thing that we see, the first reason why it's condemned is that their particular brand of false worship, failed worship, excludes people from the kingdom. In other words, their worship does not draw people to God. In fact, it prevents people from coming to him. Look at verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. That's a very clear and graphic picture. Can you imagine a guest coming up to the door of your house, and just as they're about to come in, you slam the door in their faces. When we were in Canada, everybody held the door open for everybody else because it's a very nice place to be. This would be like the most anti-Canadian statement ever. To slam the door in someone's face who expected that they had access. And not only that... You neither enter yourselves, nor do you allow those who would enter to go in. See, the tragedy is they're not limiting access to a house. They're not just keeping people outside of something like the temple. They are preventing, they are blocking access to the kingdom of God itself. What do they promise? They promise access to God if only you will do these things. 
You too can have access to God if only you will check all the boxes. You too can be holy and pure like me if only you will live like me. And they're claiming to open the door. They're claiming to show this pathway toward right relationship with God, but instead they're shutting the door and they're locking it behind them and they're preventing anyone from coming to the kingdom. Anyone who would follow their example is condemned, and he'll talk about that again in a moment. But not only that, the Christ is there. The Son of God is there in their midst telling them, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's telling them, this is the way into the kingdom. And what do they do? Over and over and over, they question him, they undermine him, they try to make him look foolish. The crowds are there in wonder, who is this? Could this be the son of David? And no, he does this through the power of Satan himself. They are continually undermining him. They are actively preventing people, to the best of their ability, from coming to the Messiah himself. These ones who claim to be religious, these ones who would claim to show people the way to God are actively preventing people from coming to God. And if you look at verse 15, it carries on with that thought, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, that's a convert, a single convert, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. You travel across the land and the sea to make one convert to your religious system. And that's an odd statement because if you've read the Old Testament, Israel was not full of missionary zeal. In fact, they were to be a light to the nations and something about them was to draw people to them. That is true. Uh, But they didn't flood the nations with missionaries. I mean, the most well-known missionary in the Old Testament is Jonah and he was far from willing. In fact, he didn't want to go because he knew exactly what God was going to do, act according to his character. And to travel across land and sea is not only a big deal, but the idea of traveling across the sea does not come natural to an Israelite. They were not a seafaring power. For a land that bordered the Mediterranean Sea, they had very little to do with wider ocean travel. The idea is that you put all this effort in to make a single convert, and when you do, it's not a good thing. It's detrimental because every time you convert someone to your system, they end up doing the same thing that you do. Their zeal matches your zeal, only it's a zeal not for worship but for self-promotion. And the tragedy is every time you convince someone that this is what it looks like to approach God, every time you convince someone that this is the way into the kingdom, you blind them, you convince them that they're good enough. It's not just that you give them a path to God, you've now set them on a path that says that you can be good enough on your own strength to approach God, and you doubly condemn them. Because now not only were they lost as they were before, but now they're convinced that they are no longer lost and they're no longer looking. And as we go through this, what we're going to do is we're going to apply each one of these points. You don't want seven things to think about at the end. And really, this passage lends itself to thinking through, as we're going through it, what are we supposed to do with this? And first of all, we have to think through this on two points. First of all, we have to understand what we're calling people to. If they were calling people to a fallen system that had no ability to save, we have to make sure that we are not doing the same thing. We are calling people to something. It's built right there into our mission statement. Calling all people to receive, demonstrate, and declare God's transforming grace through Jesus Christ. We are not calling people to Chapel City Church because this is the only place where genuine truth is found. We are not calling people to follow along in our particular programming. We are not calling people to like the songs that we do, to read the books that we do. There might be value in some of those things, but ultimately, what are we calling people to? Ultimately, we have to be a church that is calling people to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
We have to be a church that is calling people to recognize that they have sinned and offended a holy God and that the consequences for separation from God are eternal. We have to be a people that are calling people to say, you cannot work through this gap on your own. You must believe in Christ because he is the only means of reconciliation, the only means of restoration, the only means of fixing that broken relationship with God. We have to be a people that are calling people to understand that the resurrection gives us hope, that Christ's life gives us life and points us to an eternity that is not bound up in anything in this temporary, fallen, and finite world. And the second thing that we ought to remember in this is that we cannot take false religion lightly. We'd better be convinced and convicted that there are not many paths to God that all just look a little bit different. Sincerity is not the measure of truth. Being externally kind, having family values, these aren't the means that get you into the kingdom. Cults, false religions, thrive on the ignorance and the apathy of the church. Our young people are inundated in a world system. You and I are saturated with a world system that says so long as you are tolerant, then you will understand that every path can be true for them. That my truth can be mine and yours can be yours, and so long as we live with those competing truths, we can both be right. And I don't know that the church, not this church, I don't know that the church in general has equipped our youth or our adults for that matter to understand that there is one way. To give them the clarity and the courage to go out into a dark and dying world and say there is a hope, but there is one hope. Do we understand that those well-dressed young men that come to your house on a Saturday morning might very well be nice young men? But they are not on the same team that just require a little theological thinking. They are preaching a different Christ, a different Christ that cannot save. Do we understand that every man-made religion falls ultimately short and condemns people, whether or not it tells them to be good, whether or not it tells them to give to charity and be kind to their neighbors, anything that does not demand repentance, does not demand faith in Christ as the means of salvation, is ultimately condemning and shutting the kingdom out. What a dreadful thing it would be to be a church where Christ's ultimate evaluation was you are keeping people away from the kingdom. You had all the show. You had all the pretense of religion. You convinced thousands of people in a congregation that they came to worship and not one of them did sobering thought. As we move on, we're going to move a little bit faster through the rest of these, um, but I also want to point out right here something that you might have already noticed, and that is that the numbering is a little bit weird in most of your Bibles. Most of them go from 13 to 15, or verse 14 is put in brackets. Um, that's because verse 14 there isn't included in the earliest manuscripts, and this is not heresy. This is not something that snuck its way in to try to trick the church. Um, there is Matthew, or Matthew, Mark, and Luke contain very, very similar sayings, and they all include this particular passage where Jesus is confronting the Pharisees. And in Mark and Luke, verse 14 is included in those. 
Matthew probably didn't, and at some point the scribe included that familiar information. So don't say that to help you question your English Bibles. They are good and accurate and valuable translations, but it's a good thing to notice these things and ask questions, but that's why it's not in there. But as we move on, we're going to go to verse 16, and in verses 16 through 22, we're going to find that counterfeit worship is condemned because it excuses sin. Not only does it keep people out of the kingdom, but it excuses sin. Look at verse 16. Woe to you blind guides. We've gone from hypocrites now to blind guides. And the idea of a blind guide would be funny if it weren't so tragic. We play a game in the youth sometimes where they put on a blindfold or blind themselves through some other means and they have to trust another student to kind of lead them around obstacles. And it's really funny to have the guide try to communicate to the blinded person where they're supposed to go. Can you imagine if the guide was also blindfolded? It would be tremendously funny for the leaders, probably not as safe for the students. We don't do that. But the idea of a blind guide is ridiculous. But Jesus said, you are blind guides. And you say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? You say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift on the altar or the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred. So these are all wrapped up around oaths, promises. If you were entering into a, a business proposition, if you were entering into a relationship that required an agreement, you would make a promise, you would make an oath. And if you really wanted your oath to be taken seriously, what was happening is you would swear by something. We've kind of seen this picture in our courtrooms, the idea of the hand on the Bible I'll tell the truth, so help me God. The idea that you are uh, calling on some higher thing to give validity to your promise. And they would swear on the temple, or they would swear on the gold in the temple, or on the altar, or on the offering on the altar. And what Jesus is going to point out here is that their failure to worship, their failure in these oaths and promises, has nothing to do with whether they're swearing on the temple or the gold in the temple. Not, nothing to do with whether they're swearing on the altar or the offering that's on the altar. They're missing the point entirely. Uh, the problem is that they're misusing nodes altogether and that their religion, their practice here, is simply full of excuses. You blind men, which is greater? This doesn't make sense. How can the gold in the temple be greater than the temple itself? How can the offering on the altar be greater than the altar itself? None of that makes sense. But beyond that, Verse 20, whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. What you're missing in all these promises is that everything is related to God. Every time you give your word, it's related to the God that you are promising before. And so it's not a matter of getting the object right. It's a matter of doing what you say that you will do. The problem with their worship is not that they're making promises. The problem with their worship is not that they're making promises by the wrong thing. The problem is that they're making promises with no intention to keep them. The problem is that these oaths that they are taking as a means of looking religious, these promises, these religious promises maybe, that might have sounded great, are just a means of finding an excuse. They have come up with this elaborate system of excusing their lies. Whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells on it. Whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sat upon it. And if we remember back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has already talked about oaths and how our words ought to reflect what's in our heart. He says, You heard from the days of old that you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. 
But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Don't take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. What's the standard for a disciple of Christ? What's the standard for a kingdom citizen? When you say yes, do it. When you say no, don't do it. Stop lying. Stop finding excuses. Stop finding loopholes. Stop excusing your sin. False worship is characterized by excuses. False worship always looks for ways to exclude or to excuse sin. We had better think carefully about this. Do we make promises that we have no intention to keep? Yep, I'll pray for you. Be praying about that regularly. Do we say that we will do things that we have no intention of doing? More than that, when our sins are recognized and brought up, do we always have a reason for them? You know, I would have done right, but that person started it. I would have responded rightly, but they pushed me right up to that point. I would have told the truth, but the truth would have had these consequences, and there's always an excuse for sin. Believe me, no one is better at justifying their sin than me. I've always got a reason why I didn't do the right thing. And Jesus says that is a characteristic of those who do not actually worship. Consistent excuses, consistent justification of your sin is a mark of failed and false worship, and that is not a means of living in fear. It's a reminder that the truth, the simple truth, is worshipful to God. The words that are accepted by God are not the big, fancy, flamboyant, theological $5 words. Even the simple, plain truth spoken by the mouth in genuine worship becomes acceptable. Moving on. Come to verses 23 and 24, and we're right back to the woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And now we're going to see that their hypocrisy is clear and their rejected worship is rejected because it exalts the unimportant. Verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy, faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. He's talking about tithing, and tithing is a good and godly practice. Tithing was commanded under the old covenant. They had to tithe certain things in certain amounts, grain and wine and oil, and those things were necessary. They supplied the temple. They met the needs of the priesthood, among other things. It wasn't simply giving to God what you had left over. It wasn't just seeing how the budget fit at the end of the month. When you gave under the system that they were called to, you gave out of obedience. But not only did you give out of obedience, but giving was and always has been a matter of faith. When you give to God first, you wind up placing yourself dependent on Him to provide the last. And you know what? God always proves himself faithful. It's not give to get tenfold. It has always been be obedient and sit in wonder at how I provide. But here we have the Pharisees tithing the kitchen spices. And God never asked for that. So why do they do it? What's the assumption? 
the assumption is, wow, if you are so concerned with the law, if you're so concerned with obedience that you tithe the dill and the mint and the cumin, that you tithe the minutia things of life, then you must be concerned about God. If you're so willing to think through this that you would do the smallest thing, then your heart must be in the right place. Jesus says it's not. Because in pursuing the minutiae, in pursuing the minor, small things, you have utterly failed to pursue the major things. Jesus is not condemning them because they got the tithing system wrong. He's not condemning them because they didn't tithe the right spices. He's not condemning them because they got the hard passages wrong. He's not condemning them because they came to a place where it might be a little theologically sticky and they didn't quite know the right answer. He's condemning them because they've missed the basic things. You pursue the infinitely small details and you neglect the grand, plain, clear, major things. And he names them here. He says justice and mercy and faithfulness. How many times was that the basic call to God's people? And we can go to places like Micah chapter 6. And we might not know the address, but we're familiar with that passage as Micah is condemning the failure of Israel. They're willing to offer the sacrifices. They're willing to come to the temple, but their heart remains far from the Lord. And what does Micah say? Micah 6, 8, He has so shown you, O man, what is good. He's already shown you what is good. You know without a doubt what God requires. And he says, what does God require of you? Do justice. Love kindness or mercy. Walk humbly with your God. Be just. Love mercy. And be humble. And you know what happens is you pursue those things, all the little minute details begin to work themselves out. It's not that tithing isn't important. Look at what he says at the end of verse 23. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Tithing is good. You should tithe. You should do what the law commands. And you know what? If you are so consumed with passionate worship of God, if your life is so very consistent that it leads you at a heart level to tithe even the smallest things, that wouldn't have been condemned. With the proper heart behind it, to offer the small details of your life to God can be a fantastic act of worship. He says, do it, but do it with the main things. Don't do it at the exclusion of the main things. Love God so deeply. Love God so fiercely that it penetrates every crack and every crevice in your life. But it had better start with an understanding of the obedience to the major things. Two weeks ago, Charlie preached when someone asked what the greatest commandment of the law was. Love God with everything that you are at all times, and love your neighbor as yourself. The problem was they could not even do the main things. And he closes that picture uh, with a really kind of funny picture. You blind guide straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Anybody ever gotten a fly in your drink? Anybody better ever, ever been content just to let that sit in the cup and kind of power wash it down? No. That's disgusting. If something flies in the drink, I'm either getting it out or I'm getting a new drink. And he's saying, you will go to all the trouble to get the tiniest little gnat out of the cup. But the gnat is sitting on an entire camel in there. 
And I don't know about between you and me, but if I had to choose, I would rather not drink either one of those things. But if I had to choose, I'll take the gnat over licking the camel. He's saying you favor the unimportant and you ignore and neglect the major, the weighty things. And how easily do we fall into this? How tempting is it for us to major on minor things? Specifically those things that I am interested in. To define real obedience to God by whether you wear a tie on Sunday or not. To define real holiness as whether you educate your kids at home, in a private school, or in a public school. To measure someone's faithfulness and fidelity to the Bible, whether they agree with every aspect of my eschatology, my study of the end times or not. Over the last two years, how often has the church judged whether or not somebody loves others by whether they would wear a mask and get a vaccine or not? And we could flip that too. How often has the church judged someone's faithfulness or fearfulness by whether they wore a mask or got a vaccine or not? How quick as a people we are to pursue those small things because in those small things, I can show myself superior. You know what's really humbling? Not to argue over theological fine points where I happen to have done a lot of reading. You know what's humbling? To ask whether or not I've loved God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength today. That's why we avoid the majors. Because in the majors, I'm continually brought back to a place of humility. Jesus says the problem is, as you do that, it's no longer worship. As religious as it sounds, it's no longer worship. You love your theology books? Good. So do I. But if our theology books don't make us humble, if that 600-page tome doesn't make me a better husband, better father, better brother or sister in Christ, then what I need is not longer books. What I need is to return to the basic call of the gospel. You love to talk about the end times? Good. Me too. But if your view of the end times doesn't make you long for Christ and doesn't make you more humbly obedient right now today than whatever your view on the end times is, it's wrong. You love to worship? Me too. But if you can't think of the last time you loved someone enough to pray with them in the moment, the last time you loved the body enough to lay down your life for the good of somebody else in service and sacrifice, the last time you even walked across the room to introduce yourself to someone that you didn't know to make them feel welcome and connected, then do we really think that our songs are all that meaningful at the end of the day? No matter how good our voices are? Maybe it's time that we leave the gnats alone and start looking after the camels. Moving on, verses 25 through 28 all kind of group together and they give the next reason that failed worship is condemned. Failed worship, this counterfeit worship is condemned because it is externally driven. Look at verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! 
You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. We have this picture that's very easy to see, a cup or a plate. And just like we wouldn't drink it with a gnat inside, but how many of us have ever gone to the cabinet and we get that cup that looks clean, the coffee mug that looks clean until you look down in it and it still looks like it has coffee in the middle of it. It's so dark. Or you go and you bring that bowl out of the cabinet that maybe you haven't used in a while and there's some little bug that's lost its life sitting in there. It doesn't really matter what the outside of the bowl and the cup looks like if that's where we're at. No, we would clean that out before we would even think of using it. Only their problem is the inside's not filled with dirt or bugs or any of those easy things. Inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. They're filled with moral corruption. They are filled with failure to obey. See, the problem is not that these guys are physically unclean. The problem was not that Pharisee Benjamin did not brush his hair that day. No, the problem is that they think that somehow if only the outside can stay clean, then they will be pure. Don't touch the Gentile, and I'll stay clean. Don't touch the leper, and I'll stay clean. Don't go to the marketplace with all of those people, because who knows what you'll run into, and then somehow I can maintain this purity that I have built up around me. And the great problem with that is what? That the problem was never outside to begin with. The problem was always internally. It's not that outside there's corruption and greed. The problem is that they brought greed and corruption with them into every situation they went to. That's why Jesus says over and over that the problem starts in the heart. He went there in Sermon on the Mount when he talked about adultery, when he talked about murder. In Matthew 15, he says, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and that is what defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts of murder, adultery, immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. So what's the solution? Verse 26, you blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate so that the outside might also be clean. You want to fix the outside? Don't do better at washing the outside. You want to fix the outside? Cleanse the inside. Because out of the heart, the mouth speaks when the inside is dealt with, when repentance happens, when restoration happens, when the gospel transforms a heart, that is when the externals begin to show real and lasting change. And the next woe is directly related to that. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. We don't know much about tombs. I mean, we know. We know that the graveyard is over there, and we don't go to it very often. For us, death is kind of sanitized and separated from our daily existence. Not so for them. Death was close. Sometimes real close. And you could see the tombs. They were, the, this town, the, even Jerusalem, although it's a major city for them, is not huge. They knew where the tombs were. The problem is, at this point in time, you have tens of thousands of pilgrims coming in to the city. And so what they would do is they would whitewash these tombs. They would wash them and make them very clean and neat on the outside. And that was for a couple of reasons. First of all, because it looks pretty. Thousands of tombs glistening in the sun, all painted white. But also, it lets you know that that was a tomb, and that is where death was. Because you couldn't celebrate the Passover with God's people if you were unclean. And if you came into contact with death, even a grave, you were ritually unclean for a period of time. So these whitewashed tombs are beautiful, but they're also warnings for people to stay away. Jesus says to these Pharisees, you are like those tombs. 
You look good on the outside, but inside you are full of decay and corruption and death. And here's the tragedy. A whitewashed tomb will point you away from its corruption, but you are like a corpse that reaches out and draws people in. The application to this one is painfully clear. Where's my worship external rather than internal? At what point today did I care more about what you thought of my voice than about what God thought of the song that I was singing? At what point today did I care whether you noticed my hair, my makeup, my clothes? I'm not wearing makeup, by the way. Rather than being concerned with the fact that God sees my heart. Lots of us are familiar with Hebrews, especially Hebrews 4.12. talks about the Word of God being living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to penetrate bones and marrow, soul and spirit. We read that and we say, isn't the Word of God remarkable that it can do that? And we forget that that's in the middle of a warning passage. The author of Hebrews says there's an entire generation that wandered and died in the wilderness because of their hardened hearts. Don't you fall into the same thing and miss the rest of God. Do not miss the rest that God offers because you are bringing something other than a real heart because God is not fooled. Your pew neighbor might think the world of you, but God knows your heart. And again, there's a comfort in that because your pew neighbor might not think very much of you, but God knows your heart. Everything is exposed to the one to whom we will give an account, the author of Hebrews says. Moving on to verse 29, the next woe, Jesus is going to condemn their worship because it expels the truth. It pushes out and fights back against the truth. Verse 29, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. See, uh, Israel had not been kind to the prophets that God had sent. We know that. They'd killed the prophets. They'd killed the messengers of God. God was kind. God was patient. He says, Israel, if you will obey, you will live in my blessing. You will live in fellowship. You will live in covenant relationship with me. If only you will obey. And the people said, yes, we will obey. And then they never obeyed. Their hearts consistently drifted from him. They pursued the idolatry of all the nations around them. And instead of wiping them out in an instant, God sent messenger after messenger after messenger saying, your sin is serious. Judgment is coming. Repent because there's hope. And not only is there hope, but there were these consistent messages of God's kindness where he would keep them even in the midst of their rebellion. And they rejected and they rejected and they killed them. And Jesus has already alluded to this in this chapter as he gave those parables. Do you remember? The vineyard owner, he sent servants first to collect what was due to him. The king, he sent out servants to let those who had been invited know that it was time to come. And they were rejected and they were rejected. And the Pharisees, while they recognized what, they were, what their fathers, what the people had done to the prophets was wrong, they recognized that that's wicked. They're content to say that if we had been there, if we had lived in that time, we would have done better. Oh man, if we were around in the days of Isaiah and Jeremiah, boy, we would have listened. Things would have been a whole lot better. Things would have been a whole lot different. What's Jesus' evaluation? Verse 31, thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. He says, you are building a case against yourselves because you say that to kill prophets is wrong. You say that what your fathers did, rejecting men of God who spoke the word of God, was a failure. 
What are you going to do? Verse 32, fill up then the measure of your fathers. You are going to fail in a way that not even your fathers did. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? That is serious. What are they going to do? Who did they hear from? One like a voice crying in the wilderness, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Someone is coming who is greater than I am, someone who I'm not even fit to untie his sandal. And they heard the preaching of John the Baptist, and they heard him call the people to repentance, and they heard him condemn their false worship, and they wanted none of it. They hated him, they rejected him, and they were rejoicing when Herod did their dirty work and killed him. But more than that, what are they about to do? They are about to kill the Son Himself. And look at the case that Jesus says, you condemn yourselves. You, Pharisees, scribes, hypocrites, you said it was a terrible thing to kill the prophets, and indeed it was. How much more so to kill the forerunner of the Messiah Himself? And if that is abominable, how much more so to reject the very Son of God who has come to redeem you? How can you expect to avoid ultimate condemnation, eternal judgment, when you reject the one that the law foreshadowed, when you reject the one that the prophets spoke of, when you reject the one that the forerunner pointed to, when you reject the one that God has sent to save you? Would we do any better? You ever catch yourself saying, well, if I had been around in the time of Jesus, boy, I would have been able to show Peter a thing or two. I mean, I wouldn't say what he said. If I was a part of those crowds, and if I saw Jesus do what he did, boy, I would never question him. And yet you and I hold 66 books of God's completed revelation to mankind. And how often do I question him? How often do I wonder, does he really care? How often do I push back against those who tell me the truth? Those people that love me enough to tell me that I'm in sin. How often is my first response to say, who are you to talk to me that way? Do we reject truth? Counterfeit worship pushes back and rejects the truth. Not because of the way that it's presented, not because the truth is unclear, but because the truth is so clear that it convicts and condemns. As we come to these final verses, it's not another woe, it's the result of all of these woes. Because the final result of empty worship, the final outcome of rejected worship is that it brings eternal judgment. Look at verse 34. Therefore I send to you prophets and wise men and scribes. Jesus says you would do better? All right, they're coming. Prophets, wise men, scribes. Well, they're going to crucify the Son. But he's also going to send the apostles to write, to establish, to strengthen. He's going to send the church to preach. But what's going to happen? Some of whom you will kill and crucify. Some of whom you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. And that's a reading of the book of Acts. Christ is crucified James is killed. Peter and John are flogged. Paul is chased from city to city to city. You're not going to do any better. You're going to continue to reject the truth just like your fathers did. 
Here's what's going to happen. Verse 35, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barchiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. You are guilty of the blood of all of the martyrs from Abel to Z, Zechariah. And it's really fascinating if you look at the way that the Hebrew Old Testament was arranged, Abel being in Genesis, Zechariah being at the end of Second Chronicles. They are the bookends to the Hebrew Bible. That whole scope of rejection falls on you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you should have known. Because every one of them pointed to me, because you are no different, in fact, than your fathers. Truly, I say to you, all of these things will come upon this generation. Even though none of these men were alive, they are going to receive the fullness of God's wrath for their rejection. Because they reject everything that the ones who came before promised and prophesied. That's a heavy passage. But who are we talking about? Woe to who? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And after a heavy word like that, some of us watching, listening, preaching, might be wondering if those words are pointed directly at us. Some are wondering for the right reasons. Maybe you're listening or watching and you realize that your worship can't possibly point people to Christ because you don't actually know Christ. Maybe you realize that your worship has more excuses than confession. Maybe you're seeing that you've worked so hard to major on the minors that you can't even point to what the majors are anymore. Maybe you've been convicted that your worship is more of an outward show than a genuine response to God. Maybe you've been convicted of the fact that you're still rejecting truth. The wonderful thing is that it's not too late. That as the author of Hebrews says, while it's called today, don't let your heart be hardened. Confess, repent, and worship in humility. But some people here today need to be reminded that failure is not hypocrisy. That trying to live in obedience and falling short is not the mark of a Pharisee. Because our worship is never acceptable on our own. No matter how good, no matter how clean, what I do will never make my worship acceptable. My worship is only acceptable because I worship the Father with the help of the Spirit because of the finished work of the Son. Real worship is possible. It's what we're called to. And even in our worship, we give God the glory because He's the only one that makes it possible. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us for falling short, and we all do. Lord, convict us if there are areas where we fall short and we refuse to see them, or worse, we excuse them. Lord, draw us to the place of real worship, hearts that cry out to you for forgiveness, hearts that are lifted up by your promise of restoration, and hearts that are bold and confident because of who you are. Lord, we need you in all these things. 
and you are so good and so worthy. Amen.